Well, our text is Lord's Day 35. That's on page 49 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But before we read that, that text, those three questions and answers, I'd like to read with you from Deuteronomy 4. Now, Deuteronomy, <clears throat> Moses is preparing to depart from the people. He's reminding them of the things that they have learned and heard out in the wilderness. That when they go into the land, they will be well equipped for serving God and living before Him in a way that honors the Lord. Now, of course, Deuteronomy 5 is where we found our text this morning for reading the law. And Deuteronomy 4 is preparing God's people to receive that law again, to, to understand how they're to take it up and cherish it and use it. And so he says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among, all, from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there? that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. So He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of an animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be His people and inheritance as you are this day. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Reminding God's people of how special they are as God's unique inheritance. 
but also of how he would be approached by them. And that's really a big point in this second commandment. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? It is, says our catechism, that we in no way make any image of God nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. But may not images be permitted in the churches as teaching aids for the unlearned? No. We shouldn't try to be wiser than God. He wants His people instructed by the living preaching of the Word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Beloved saints, saved through Jesus Christ, as we look to the second commandment, we might be tempted to somewhat let down our guard. After all, we're reformed. And the second commandment is about idols, about carved images. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. We hear that. We nod. We smile. No idols. No problem. After all, it's not like we have statues of Mary and countless saints to to which we pray and offer incense. We realize the wrongness of that and we reject it. It's not like we've filled our sanctuary with icons, little images depicting Bible scenes before which we genuflect and bow. No, we know that that's wrong and we don't do it. None of that for us. We're not even like the cool churches that use video clips and projected images. No video screens for us. So, we should be fine, right? But before we get too proud of ourselves, Maybe we need to go a little deeper into this commandment. Maybe we need to ask, why did God give this commandment in the first place? Was it only about pictures? Was it only about images? Was it only about statuary? Because if it was just about visual images in worship, then folks, we have a problem. We have a problem because right after He gave these Ten Commandments, He told Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting where God's presence would dwell. And that tabernacle was filled with images. The bronze sea, the table of showbread, the angels over the ark, the priestly clothes with all of their glittering jewels, the precious gold and silver gleaming on every side. Nor was it only the Old Testament in which God commanded visual images. What are baptism and the Lord's Supper but visual images of the sacrifice and the service of Christ on our behalf? Okay, well then... The second commandment is not just about images in general, but maybe about carved images. God doesn't like statues in His worship. But what about the bulls under the bronze sea? What about the pomegranates that adorned the, the temple? What about the lampstand fashioned in the image of an almond tree? God isn't against all images. That's not what the second commandment is about. The second commandment prohibits worship that is humanistic. That is... Worship that rests not in God, in His commands, in His obedience, but but in us. 
in what we desire, in what we devise, in what we imagine for ourselves. The second commandment prohibits worship that is common. Worship that is about us. And that's something which does tempt us. It tempts all men. So we need to consider very carefully what such worship looks like and how we can show our gratitude by avoiding it. To teach us that lesson, Lord's Day 35, summarizing so very much Scripture, reveals how the Lord calls His grateful people to bring worship that is unique. That theme acknowledges something. And that's that we were made to worship. Everybody worships. Atheists, agnostics, they worship. They just don't worship the true God. Everybody worships, but the Lord calls us as His grateful people, as those who have been delivered through Christ, He calls us to offer worship that is unique, that is distinctly different from their worship. And that involves two things, the first of which is uniquely submitting to the true God. In the 1990s, a phenomenon hit the Reformed churches that has been derisively termed the worship wars. The churches began, not all of them of course, but many churches began replacing the sort of worship that we practice and that has been practiced in the Reformed churches for at least 500 years with what they called contemporary worship. They, they got rid of the organ and piano set off to the side and they replaced them with a band. They started phasing out the psalms and the theologically rich hymns and began replacing them with popular choruses. Different groups from the congregation demanded a right to participate in worship, by which they meant, we don't want to just participate back here in the pews, we want to lead worship. Soon the children were ushered out. There's something more exciting for them to do elsewhere. Drama was ushered into the service, and sermons were augmented with with video clips and artwork and PowerPoint. Now, a lot of these elements were modern, but what drove these changes was absolutely ancient. It was seen 200 years ago when Charles Finney and his followers desired to create revival, so they replaced the old psalms with emotion-driven hymns. They stopped preaching doctrine and started working on people's feelings. In the Middle Ages, those same attitudes are what filled the church sanctuary with the the pomp and circumstance and finery of the Roman government. And in ancient Israel, those same attitudes brought a variety of innovations, like offering sacrifices at private altars, adopting the rites of paganism to the worship of the true God, redesigning the altar to match the seemingly more impressive altar of a false god. All of this arose from the exact same spirit that gave rise to our modern worship wars. And that spirit is the spirit of rebellion. It's the rebellious spirit that rejects the unique worship commanded by God and insists that we will fashion worship that delights our heart, that pleases us, that reflects us. See, the problem here with those kind of changes is that God really cares how we worship. Look at the example of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Aaron originally had four sons. They were all ordained priests when he was ordained the chief priest. And two of them, Nadab and Abihu, at one point decided to add to the worship that God had commanded. They took their censers. Those kids were little um, metal boxes 
that you could put some coals from the altar and God had uh, given a recipe for special incense that should only be used in the worship of God and you would put that incense in the censer on top of the coals and it would create an aroma, it would create a, a cloud of smoke and it was to be used at particular times in a particular way. But Nadab and Abihu, they decided to bring different worship with their censers. They used strange fire, not the coals from the altar. We believe they probably used a different kind of incense as well. Now, we don't know why they did it. They might have wanted to bribe or manipulate God, but it might have been that they just wanted to add something new, something exciting, something different to the worship of God. They wanted to contribute. But whatever their motive was, God had not commanded the worship that they were bringing, and God responded... Rather clearly, fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses explained, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. You see, God cares deeply and jealously how his people worship him. He cares whether they obey or disobey him in the worship. He's not flattered when they depart from or set aside what he has commanded in the Middle Ages. Folks started making windows for the churches that showed the life of Jesus. And some people complained, you know, that, well, I don't know if that's appropriate. It didn't happen, by the way, until the Middle Ages. But the leaders of the church said, well, you know, so few people know how to read anymore. Many of them don't even understand the language used in the church. This way, at least they can learn about the Bible. They can learn about Jesus through the pictures they see. But our forefathers said, no, God has not commanded it. And we shouldn't try to be wiser than God. He wants His people instructed by the living preaching of the Word, not by idols that cannot even talk. In other words, we shouldn't depart from what He has commanded, even when we think we have really good reasons for it, even when it's about our felt needs or the felt needs of the people in the congregation, even when it's about the kids. Really, that's a central question when, when it regards the worship we bring to God. We need to ask, who is it who should decide what's involved in that worship? Martin Luther said, whatever God is not forbidden, we may include in worship. The megachurch leaders in America today say, whatever gets people in the seats, that's appropriate in worship. Leaders of the new so-called emergent movement Claim that worship should include whatever feels right, whatever makes you feel closer to God. But notice, each of those criteria is based on man's choice, man's desire. It's all about man. But our answer needs to be different if we really believe that God is the one who's at the heart of worship. And that's what His Word shows us. You wouldn't like that answer. We think, you know, God lets us decide so much in life. We get to pick the career we want. We can pick where we, where we live. We can pick our favorite food, our favorite music, our favorite pastime. Why not decide what kind of worship we enjoy? But the thing is that we're sinful. And this is the most, kids, you hear this, this is the most important thing we do in life when we worship God. Because that's what we were designed to do. And if we worship God faithfully, obediently before Him, then that will affect everything we do in the rest of our week. It'll affect the way that we interact with our parents and the way we interact with our friends. It'll affect the way that we do our work and the way we do our learning. Because that 
submissive worship to God, it's going to set the tone for our very lives. And God thinks it's very important. In Deuteronomy 12, God talks all about the worship of His people. And the first thing He says is, when you go into that land, you're going to see a lot of pagan people and the way they worship their gods. Destroy it all. They weren't to save it for museums. They weren't to preserve some of it as cultural artifacts. No. Destroy it all. Lest you learn to worship the true God using the man-centered practices of the false gods. He said, take heed to yourselves that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You shall not. Whatever I command you, he says, you shall be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. He cares how we worship and he wants our worship to be submissive to him. In fact, we saw that same thing in our text from Deuteronomy 4, didn't we? At the start of the chapter, Moses urges God's people to follow carefully God's law. He says, you shall not add to it. Add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now those commandments, it's not just the the full of the law. Later on in this chapter, he talks specifically about worship and idolatry. He emphasizes to them before anything else, your worship must be focused on God. You must worship in a way that God has commanded. You must worship in a way that's submissive. And so it is for us. God didn't deliver us from Egypt, but He delivered us from a worse slavery, our slavery to sin and Satan. And now He calls us to serve Him obediently, thankfully, gratefully. It's not only about the gratitude we show, it's about the witness we show. Verses four through, or 6 through 7 here. It says, Be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes. In other words, the people around them would see how God's people obeyed the Lord, especially how they worshipped, and they would be struck by how unique that was, by how different that was. If I can put it in modern terms, they wouldn't walk in and say, wow, this is just like that concert I went to the other day. No, they would say, this is absolutely unlike anything I've ever experienced. Sometimes we get that complaint. Uh, You know, it seems so weird to people who've never been in church. It should. They've never worshipped the true God. Now, we should be right alongside of them, explaining to them what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. But if it doesn't seem odd to them, if it doesn't seem utterly unique to them, then we're doing something wrong. Because God has commanded a worship that is utterly unique. And so important is this in God's eyes that He urges His people to watch themselves closely, to teach their children diligently what He has commanded about worship. So that must be our focus, our passion. We must worship God obediently, gratefully submitting to Him. We must take care to obey His commands about worship faithfully. And we must teach our children and their children. Not, please hear this, Not with long faces and a resigned sigh, well, this is what we have to do. But gratefully, our God not only saved us, but He taught us how to worship. He gave us this amazing gift. This is what will delight me, He says. And we're privileged to do that. We're privileged, in fact, to join with the angels and the saints in heaven in worshiping our God. 
Now, how can we explain that to our children and not be thankful, grateful, overjoyed? thing is, the sinful part of us doesn't much like submission. We don't like the idea of submission. And we need to acknowledge that. And think carefully about how we'll respond to that. Because men will complain to us. People will visit us. And they'll say, I I don't like it. It just didn't fit my tastes. It didn't move me. Or maybe it it's just not my thing. And we could nod and say, well, yeah, I guess, okay. Or we could use that as an opportunity to challenge them and, and push them a little bit and urge them to examine their underlying assumptions. Why do you want to worship differently than God has commanded? Maybe that would be a good question. Maybe that would be a great question after we show them why we worship the way we do. Do you understand why we worship this way? Do you know why we do what we do? Ask them that. And then show them how it comes from the Bible. Show them that that the call to worship and the greeting comes straight out of Scripture. And how we have a dialogue with God that reflects the dialogue that God had with His people in the tabernacle. Show them how God not only calls us to worship, but then sets His law before us to condemn us. And we confess our sin. And then He sets that assurance of pardon before us, and we respond by coming into His presence in prayer. And then He offers His words, so we give a song of praise. And then we listen to that word, and we hear it applied to our lives, and we respond by asking Him for help in prayer. And then giving Him thanksgiving in song. And then He sends us forth with His blessing. That all comes from Scripture. Every bit of it is commanded by God. So show them that. And then ask them, now why is it that you want to do something different? Something that God has not commanded? Most of them will say because, well, you know, I don't know. I, I just want something that will make me more excited. Well, the thing is, that will excite us the more we come to know God. But more importantly than that, we need to challenge their assumption that worship is about them. It's not. Worship is about God. And when we focus on God and we focus on loving God and showing Him our thanks, then He's going to make it in time delight us. But that's not the primary objective. Or maybe they'll talk about their needs in worship. They need a special kind of music to get them in the mood to worship. Special kinds of messages to solve the problems in their life. But we need to teach them that God knows what we need. He commanded exactly what we need. And He will meet our needs through His Word, through His Spirit, through His people. When folks complain, we need to lovingly, gently challenge them. And ask, why would you want to worship in a way that God has not commanded? Now, of course, not everyone will accept this calling to submit to God in worship. Many will reject it. Certainly, folks who are strangers to the faith, unless God works in their hearts, they'll reject it. But but even some of our own children will say, no, I want something more exciting like I get at chapel, at the school, or at at one of the uh, other churches in town. Brothers and sisters, you dare not let your children walk away unchallenged, lovingly, but persistently. Ask them, why do we worship the way we do? Why would you turn aside from what God has commanded? 
It's essential. Of course, you can't dictate the way they will go, but you can ask them and urge them and remind them that they have to answer to the Lord for that. And you need to show them. Oh, brothers and sisters, you need to show them that you don't do it just pharisaically as an outward form, thinking that somehow you're earning something before God by this worship. You're not. If it's truly grateful worship, then it comes from the heart. Flowing forth from our love for God and our gratitude for Christ. And that is going to mean more to them, I submit to you, than all of the logical arguments that you can set before them when they see your love for the Lord, your passion for the Lord, your delight in the Word that God gives us. Always, the essence of our worship must be a living, faith-filled submission born of thankfulness to our God. But there's one other aspect that we need to see in the form of this second commandment. I, I said earlier that, that the, the talk of idols and images was the form used to reveal the heart of this commandment. That the heart of the commandment is about how we worship God, whether we'll submit to Him, whether we'll put Him in the center. But idols and images are important because they're attempts to portray God. And that's always used in false worship. And therefore, our worship, if we are to be truly grateful to God, it must, it must not only be uniquely submitting to Him, but also uniquely portraying the true God. False gods are always given some visible form, whether in pictures or sculptures or parts of the creation, there's always an image. But the true God is different. He's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Such a God who made everything, who sustains everything at every moment. He is too great, too magnificent, too awesome for our puny minds even to comprehend accurately. Certainly, He's too great to be comprehended in images. As creatures, we have no accurate point of reference for where to even begin. All we have is the creation He made, which though it reflects Him, is woefully inadequate to do Him justice. And that's the thing. Any attempt that we make to physically portray God short of those ways that God has already given us in the sacraments, any attempt would be so weak as to be offensive. We can't use a fallen, sin-filled creation to portray the perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, holy God. Nor can even the most magnificent parts of the creation capture His magnificence, His excellence. That's why we heard in our assurance of pardon, or our call to worship this evening. Our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, we must serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The people of God have always been tempted, though, to try to portray God. And so God asked them in Isaiah 40, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? And then He explains, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? There is nothing in this created world to which we might rightly compare Him. Our greatest efforts would be an offense. So Moses warned God's people in our scripture reading for this evening. Don't try. Don't try. Take careful heed to yourselves. You saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, of any animal or any winged bird or anything that creeps on the ground or any fish or the, the heavenly host. Don't do it. You didn't see His image. You didn't see His likeness for a reason. So don't try to create it up out of whole cloth. Well, what about images of Jesus? How about pictures of Him? Some argue that these are okay. After all, Jesus' form has been seen. Matter of fact, they use that passage as justification. He came as a man. He lived 30-some years among men. His form is of the creation because He's a man like us. But remember, God didn't allow His image to be preserved, did He? We don't know what He looked like. God could have preserved it, but He did not. The Lord has hidden Jesus' image from us, and we must not try to imagine it. Regardless of man's best laid arguments, Jesus is God. He is God, and God commands us not to make an image of Him. By the Scriptures and by the preaching, we too have heard the voice of God, but we have not seen His image. And so the command comes to us as well. You must not make an image. You must not devise that which you have not seen. And there are good reasons why God prohibits images of Himself. Those who make images of false gods almost invariably seek to manipulate God through them. Some openly. They offer incense or food offerings to God. They, they bow before their block of wood thinking that if they honor and feed this image of the true God, the God will be so flattered that He will be compelled to answer their prayer to meet their need to do what they ask. And the true God will not be manipulated in that way. He just won't do it. But we're tempted to that. Not openly, not overtly, but... But how many Christians hang that image of God in the most prominent place in the house to honor Him? Or they hang that image of the Lord in their sanctuary so they can feel near Him. That's manipulation. It's not high-handed manipulation. It's not intending to manipulate the Lord. But that's what it turns out to be. And God says, you heard my voice, but you have not seen me. Therefore, make no image of me. Submissively, gratefully, thankfully, we must obey Him. And even if we could avoid that temptation to manipulate God, images of Him are always a pitfall. Once a picture enters our heads, we can't get it out. Young people, you know that, right? How many of you have watched a scary movie? And you delighted in how it scared you when you were watching it with your friends. But then that night, you close your eyes 
And all of a sudden those images are there just as vivid as when you first saw them and you can't get rid of them. And you can't go to sleep because those images are still there. And so it is with images of God. Someone draws a picture, makes an image. It's artwork. It's not intended for worship. But it becomes part of our worship because it's in our minds. And so when we think of God, that image involuntarily pops in there. We can't get rid of it. So again the Lord says, to whom then will you liken God? A false image made after the image of men? Or will you simply hear His voice and believe? Because in, in fact, that's what God wants of us. He has given us not images, but His living Word. That's why God fills the worship which He commands of us with His Word. By means of the Word read, He calls us to worship. By means of the Word spoken, He bestows His blessing upon us. By means of the Word sung in psalms and scriptural hymns, God teaches us how to pray and receives our praise from us. He calls us to illustrate the Word visibly through the sacraments. And above all, He calls the Word to be preached using that preached Word to form faith in our hearts, using it to regenerate us, using it to mature us as members of His body. Always, it is God's Word to which we return. God's Word instructs us how to worship, fills our worship, and sends us forth from our worship that we might use it to testify about God. Now, is this the kind of worship that we would in, uh, invent on our own? Probably not. But praise God, we're not in charge. Because whatever we would devise assuredly would not be as excellent, would certainly not be unique, and would not honor God the way the worship He has commanded does. So, brothers and sisters, we need to joyfully, thankfully submit to this worship God has commanded of us. Not insisting on the common, weak, unflattering worship that men would design, but submissively, joyfully embracing what God has devised. And as we bring that worship, let us confess... This worship alone, what God has commanded, is what's good for us and glorifying to Him. This second commandment, it calls us to reject worship that is common, worship that is centered on us. And it calls us instead to focus on God as He has revealed Himself to us. As He has commanded of us, trusting always that God and God alone knows exactly what is good for His children. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, it's hard for us. It's hard for us to reject our own will, reject our own desires, reject our own perceived sovereignty in order to submit to You. But Lord, we pray that You would make us to delight in the worship which You have commanded. And to rejoice that we get to gather with the saints and even the very angels in bringing You the worship You deserve. And Father, we pray that You would preserve in our children and our grandchildren after us as well as the, the visitors whom You bring in our doors, preserve in them a desire for worship that is unique, that is not centered on man, on man's needs, on man's desires, but teach them to crave that which You have commanded, that which delights You. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.